we're ready. Okay. So good morning and welcome back. And uh, lovely to see everybody. Lovely to meet again in this in our this community practice. You know, this gathering of friends of the Dharma and friends in the Dharma and uh, spiritual friends, Kalyanamita, if you like that or feel attraction to that phrase, that this is an expression of that, that impulse in the practice. Today, we sort of, in, in this third class, we're going to dig in deep to the sort of not self teachings and the selfing, the relationship of selfing and views that is the heart of this sutta. And in a way, one of the hearts anyway, of the, of the teachings. Ying won't be with us today. I just mentioned that at the outset so that if people don't see her with us, they won't go, oh, Diana and Kim seem to have <laughs> done something with Ying. Where is she? She's not here. Wait, 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 David. Why would you be blaming it on us? We could say, wait, David did something <laughs> with Ying. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm trying to, trying to push suspicion off onto <laughs> my good friends. Um, yeah, so Ying won't be with us today. She, we expect she'll be back on Saturday. Um, and we just thought we'd open as we like to with seeing if things come up, uh, you know, over the last 48 hours in people's practice. We left you with some, we think, stimulating homework uh, just to sort of keep reconsidering and bringing into practice the teachings available in Majjhima Nikaya 22, the similes, the relationship between the similes. So if you have a question or a thought or reflection, please please feel free to raise the, um, the virtual hand. And if that, you know, if, if it's hard to find that or it's not working today, just uh, wave a hand about or um, unmute and jump in. Any questions, any reflections? Uh, how did it go in these last 48 hours? And maybe I'll just throw in, it's really great to have a really range of views. We don't all have to be thinking the same. So if somebody says something, doesn't mean that we all have to agree or I I don't know. I just kind of want to make room for all of us here. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Steve, I see your hand. I looked, I'm sorry. And David, you're first, actually. David, Adelante. Okay, I, I just, um, I've been playing with this, that distinction between uh, mindfulness and flow. And I just want to register my, uh, I just am not satisfied with it. Particularly when I went back to the suttas and uh, reviewed, confirmed that the Buddha described mindfulness as being a part of every state of concentration, really up to Naroda, where basically no consciousness is present. And so, you know, and I think those states of concentration, the jhanas, material and immaterial, are like flow, can, or can be likened to flow. So I think awareness is always present, and there's a mindful aspect of awareness and there are various stages of mindfulness and so um yeah i think i don't know if you saw my message but i th- i know we're going to get into identification today 
And I, you know, for me, the common concept of mindfulness has a lot of identification. This is my experience, my sensations, my emotions. And, you know, so my anyway, views, and my views. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, you know, and, and, and unfortunately, that's, uh, you know, there's this whole thing about right view and, and, and wrong view. And we can get, we can really tie ourselves into knots about what's our relationship to views and yeah, and divisiveness and stuff. So anyway, that's my thoughts. Thank you. Appreciate that. I did see the note uh, on Tuesday and, uh, you know, we were right at the close. So I didn't, didn't open it up. I, I, that is as a, you know, for, for discussion. No, nice, interesting. And yes, the way these things are intertwined and the sort of originality and creativity that we need to exert to meet them when we're, when we're caught up in, in things is, um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's very challenging. Maybe I'll add one thing. It can be really helpful to make these real distinctions between mindfulness, consciousness, um, concentration. It can be really helpful sometimes to tease these apart, and sometimes it's not helpful. So we can just use that as a kind of a guide. When is it helpful, supportive of our practice to be really concerned with the precision, and when is it not helpful? And and part of practice is you know learning that the art of practice is learning when is it uh, helpful and not helpful. Yeah. And so let's turn to Steve's question. And then let me also just say, um, you know, we want to make sure that everybody, uh, everybody and anybody feels, uh, you know, comfortable asking questions. We, we, uh, you know, want to make sure we get all voices in. We, we don't, it's not necessary in this class. We, we know from the, um, what do we call them? Application registration forms that people come with a lot of different kinds of experience, including people who this is the first discourse of the Buddha they've read. And we want to, we want to hear all the questions, uh, beginners questions and the beginner's mind that they show up with, uh, are super valuable to people who think that like us, that they're way advanced in the teachings or in the practice. So don't be, don't be shy. Don't feel any obligation to speak, but, um, we want to encourage everybody's voice. So Steve, just to piggyback, uh, can you hear me? Okay. Yes. Just to piggyback on what you just said, I, a couple of times I visited the Nisro Bhikkhu's monastery in uh, Southern California, and I asked him, how, how could I be your student? And, and he laughed, and he said, practice and ask questions. So, yeah, it's right on. Um, so what I want, just wanted to share, it wasn't a question, but it was a, uh, it, it occurred to me <clears throat> that, that selfing, uh, is as uh, ubiquitous and unconscious as these little m movements that we make with our hands. Sometimes we'll go like this or pu push our hair out of our face or something like that. And these are actions that are not reflexive or like, like blinking is, but they are really unconscious and they happen all the time. And I think selfing's just like that. That's yeah. all. Yeah. I'm going to pass the baton, if that's the right phrase, to Diana. But let me just say that you say something very important, Steve. There's a place at which um, habitual behaviors 
become so deeply ingrained that they seem reflexive. And this is something they seem ingrained. They seem hardwired. And this is something where the Buddhist teachings really point. A lot of what we take to be the nature of reality or of our experience of the world isn't isn't actually there in the experience. It's added on. And of those things that cause suffering, self is, you know, the most, um, the one that Buddha's teachings point over and over again. So this is the perfect setup, Diana, I think, for Diana, who's going to start talking about exactly this. Great. Thank you. Thank you, uh, everybody. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about selfing and the aggregates to help set up the conditions in which we can continue um, our discussion of the sutta. So I'm not going to point precisely to things in the sutta right now, but to speak more generally about these um, not-self teachings. So one way we might consider the um, what's being pointed to as a self, quote-unquote, maybe in modern words, we might use something like ego or soul or something like that. That's, you know, and I'm going to use some vague language so we can find our, ourselves here. So we're not talking about I have no self because, of course, you know, you can see me. I'm sitting there and I can see you. You're sitting there or standing there or something. But this, although our bodies are undergoing transformations every instant, we know this our hair is growing, our fingernails grow, uh, you know, we are digesting things or, you know, so even though the body is undergoing transformations and the mind is this theater of just countless emotional experiences, conceptual experiences, mental events, I'll say, we often find ourselves kind of thinking or identifying with them. And I'm going to unpack this a little bit. But in um, modern, using modern language, we might think of the self as being unique and constant and autonomous. Without, you know, delving into it, this might be just the natural way that we think about our self, quote unquote. And maybe one more thing I'll say about it is that also um, without being aware necessarily, we think of it as being vulnerable, something that has to be bolstered and protected and maybe even um, enlarged or aggrandized or something like this. So before I dig into some of the details, I, I want to say that some there's a number of common initial reactions to the not-self teachings, very common. I don't know of anybody who has ever heard these for the first time or the second time or the third time, or maybe even the fourth time who thought like, Oh yeah. Okay. I get it. I totally get it. This is something that we um, hear again and again, different teachers, different contexts, different words and books and derma talks. And it um, usually is not, in fact, maybe I would, I can't say it specifically, but I would say it's not until we have meditative experiences that it really sinks in. We can have an intellectual understanding and certainly philosophers want to do this and neurologists want to do this. But what the Buddha is pointing to is not philosophy, is not neurology, but our actual experiences. So when we hear these, 
teachings, we might have these mixed reactions, some ambivalence, because this not self-teaching runs counter to what our usual ideas we have about ourselves, as well as maybe this gut feeling we might have about the way things are. So we might have puzzlement, disbelief, even a little bit of anger, like, what? I, I thought these Buddhist people had some good ideas, and now they're talking about not self, and that seems a little wacky. So it might be a think that it's ridiculous and tempted to just completely dismiss it. But I'll say that, as, as all of us know, that this journey of spiritual practice and study and practice requires some open-mindedness and some humility. And that we can maintain this openness of this spirit of inquiry, asking questions, is essential. And it helps bring the path to life. It helps it so it doesn't just become these concepts that we argue about and how many angels really are on the head of a pin or I don't know. So I kind of want to make this something that we practice with, not just talk about. Okay. Okay. So if we have this one way that we can find our way in with the idea of a self is to kind of just have this general test. Well, if the self existed as a distinct entity, autonomous and you know, um, constant, you know, as a thing, we should be able to describe it. That's something that uh, seems like a reasonable thing to do. And maybe in particular, we could ask, well, where is this self, right? Entities, we should be able to answer this question where they are. And as I pointed to earlier, we can say it can't be in the body because our body is changing all the time. And not only that, when we cut our hair, we don't feel like we have less of a self. So then you might say, well, maybe it's the sum of the parts of the body. It's not just hair or digestive systems or something. But then we're no longer talking about an entity. If we're talking about like a sum of things, that's more a concept because we can't point to what precisely is the body that we're identified with. So then we might say, okay, okay, it's not the body. Don't be silly. It's the mental experience. But a mental experience is to think, I'm hungry. We have that thought, we have that idea. And so we might say, well, I'm hungry. I, um, the idea of being hung hungry is a, a judgment, uh, maybe a concept. I mean, there is biological systems, but we've applied on top of that a, um, a concept. Maybe this isn't the best example. But if we do say I'm hungry as a mental uh, exploration, then later when we, after we eat, we, we're no longer hungry. So the self that was hungry now it's no longer hungry. Did that self go away? So what happened there? So we can do some of these kind of like investigations to help get a sense of what the Buddha is pointing to. So in the handout that um, 
we emailed to you, we talked about these, uh, these five aggregates. And this is one way in which the Buddha described our experiences by categorizing them. This is artificial. This is just a way to categorize processes, experiences, and the Buddha used them. He used other systems as well, kind of like the six senses, for example. But this is one. And, and maybe I'll um, share screen so that you can see um, for a, a moment what, what I'm pointing to here. So I think many of you saw this uh, handout. So we have these five aggregates, form, feelings or feeling tone, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And for the purpose of this class, this setting, we can simplify this to the physical aspect of experience, the body, or, yeah, I'll say mostly it's the body, or mental aspects of experience, or the knowing of experience. We can simplify all of our experiences into one of those three buckets. And then when the um, Buddha, when he was teaching about a sense of self, he was saying that a sense of self arises when we grasp at, when we cling, when we identify with one of these experiences, whether it's the physical, mental, or the knowing. And this grasping, this identifying is subtle. Often this is why um, we have meditation practice is to help us see these subtle things. We usually can't see it. Sometimes we can, but we can't see the more and more subtle ones with our ordinary, in, in a non-meditative state when the mind is quieted down. So it's usually hidden from our awareness. And as I was pointing to, it's not necessarily something we can understand intellectually but it's more that we can feel as kind of like, oh yeah, a contraction in some way. So things that we might identify with, roles. Roles of being a parent, being a child, being a spouse. Desires. Our sense of aesthetic, our spiritual desires, our sexual desires, our intellect. I'm a smart person. I'm not so smart. Or, or maybe even like archetypes in some general way, like of being the hero or the mother or the never do well or something like this. And one thing that the Buddha pointed to, so maybe I'll stop sharing screen for a moment here. Um, I have to find my way around here. Oh, this gets a little bit tricky when I have, uh, I have to make this, I lost my, not exactly sure how to do this. I made it uh, smaller so that I could see my notes and then now I can't see how to stop screen sharing. Okay, well, maybe we're gonna continue screen sharing for, oh, here it is, okay. So one thing that that Buddha said um, is, and we can experience this to identify with something is dukkha because we have to protect it, we have to um, 
we maybe have to support it. And of course, we know this, everything changes. So things that we're grasping onto sooner or later are going to change. So then there's this trying to find, well, what, what else, what else can I grab onto? Or even if we don't see them change, we have this fear of their loss. And that's part of the dukkha that's associated with identifying things. And a second way that we might um, create a self is that we um, appropriate something as we like take it to be as a possession. But when we really look at this, we can see that nothing in the world can truly be possessed by us. We have relationships with things. We have relationships with experiences, but they are only ours, quote unquote, for a short time. Again, in the end, things, people, tasks, they all die or change or we lose them. In fact, ownership is just a very convenient conventional social agreement that we all have. So nothing in the world can be truly possessed by us. And we don't actually really possess any moment of experience either. Because we neither invite our thoughts, nor do we own them in the sense that we can make them do what we want, right? We know this. We wouldn't have to have a meditation practice if our thoughts did exactly what we thought we wanted them to do. Or how many of us think that we're really in control of our emotions, right? No, they're more like the weather. And then we don't own our bodies either, right? They're aging, getting sick, doing things that we wish that they didn't. So maybe I'll just end with this um, this one or two ideas. So there are some misconceptions we might have about the selflessness. When we talk about not self, we're not saying that we have to get rid of the eagle, ego-centered self. There's nothing to get rid of. But so it's not like we have to separate a good aspect from the bad aspect, which would just reinforce aversion. Or maybe there might have this idea that um, not having sense of self feels like it would be uh, an excuse to withdraw from life and justifies a lack of motivation. Well, there's no self. Why do I have to do all these things or might reinforce an underlying depression or fear the world where we completely withdraw or might support a sense of passivity. Instead, I want to point to that realizing not self, like having a meditative experience or having a deep understanding, appreciation, really leads to an this an appreciation of the mystery and beauty of life. It's like a sense of awe usually arises and there's this joy and this lightness of heart, like, wow. And this comes with a flexibility and an ease. So I think I'll 
end there. So that's maybe for now enough words to talk about this. And Steve, I see your hand up, but I think before we're going to go to some answer some questions, we're going to move into more a different way to um, work with this teaching. And I'll hand it over to Kim. Thank you. Great, thank you. So um, now we'll do a guided meditation in order to connect in with some of these ideas that we've been bringing into the mind. We'll now sit with them in a different way, as Diana said. So please find a posture that's uh, stable and upright, 